I'm Leah Sparks, CEO and founder of Wildflower Health. FemsTech to me is radically changing the healthcare system to meet the needs of women who are the most powerful constituents in the healthcare system. Welcome to FemTech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and today's episode is brought to you by Witham. Witham is a forward-thinking, technology-driven advisory and accounting firm committed to helping companies be more profitable, efficient, and productive in today's complex business environment. Witham's dedicated FemTech team is proud to partner with members of the FemTech community. Get to know their team at witham.com backslash FemTech. This episode was also brought to you by the Women's Health Innovation Summit, taking place in Boston on September 14th and 15th and virtually on September 28th. The Women's Health Innovation Summit is the sector's leading platform committed to strengthening the network, tackling unmet needs, and championing innovative approaches and solutions. The focus is not only on female-only health challenges, but female-prevalent diseases and those conditions that affect or present differently in women. With so many differing health challenges across a woman's life, the flagship summit brings together all of the critical stakeholders to focus on the intersections and sector-straddling challenges with the ambition of moving the needle toward improved outcome for women's health. Visit womenshealthinnovationusa.com to find out more and get your tickets. Okay, Fem fans, in today's episode, I interview Leah Sparks, the CEO and founder of Wildflower Health. Wildflower Health is a healthcare software tool that accelerates virtual and value-based care between physicians, insurance companies, and the patient. They engage patients with a combination of high-tech and high-touch support. Telehealth and healthcare software that connects doctors, patients, and insurances may seem like old news, especially after this past year with COVID-19. But Wildflower has been doing this in, in women's health since 2012 with their maternal health app. Today, they support the entire ecosystem, the payer, the provider, and the family with a clinically integrated solution that is purpose-built to advance more efficient and effective care, as well as a payment model that fuels it. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Leah. Welcome to the show. Hey, Brittany. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yes, it is lovely to have you on here. I was first introduced to Wildflower a very long time ago, and I was like, they look like a very big, successful company. I hope one day I'll have them on the show. And now here we are. So we did it. (laughs) Where are you calling in from? I am in Marin County outside of San Francisco, where I've been hunkered down in my office bunker for much of the past year. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, Do you miss being in the office? Did y'all used to have a big office that you worked out of? We had a a really nice space in the Presidio of San Francisco, right by the Golden Gate Bridge. And I um, loved being there every day with my 
colleagues. Um, so yeah, I definitely miss seeing people. We are probably moving into more of a fully remote workforce because we already only have half the company in San Francisco and it makes sense for hiring and everything else. But I definitely miss seeing the people that I, you know, work with, but I still see them on zoom. It's all worked out. Yeah. Yeah. I miss bringing my little dog into the office. Like he loved it. I loved it. Everyone loved it. It was always like a really fun time. Now he just sleeps on a bed behind me um, or on my lap. He often makes appearances (laughs) on the show. Um, Well, let's start off with your background. Uh, Can you tell us where you're from? What did you study? Did you have a company before this? How did you end up here? Yeah, it's a good question. I have been in healthcare for about 20 years, which I can't believe I'm even saying that, but I'm possibly been in healthcare 20 years. But um, I yeah, started my career in big corporate healthcare at this company called McKesson that distributes drugs all over the country. So it's sort of the bowels of the healthcare system. But I learned a lot about healthcare and being inside healthcare from them. But while I was there, I always kept trying to sign up for projects to start new things. I started a company in fashion and shopping on the side while I was there. I tried to start a business in wine distribution while I was there. So I was clearly drawn to starting new things and realized I was never going to be happy running big divisions of big companies that I love to create and create new things and ultimately decided to do that in healthcare. And, um, didn't, you know, and started to kind of chart that path. I went to work for this woman entrepreneur who was a serial healthcare tech entrepreneur, one of the early leaders in the space. You might want to have her on the show sometime, actually. She um, started one of the first businesses that WebMD bought in 1999 when they were putting together their assets for consumer health. And she, at the time, was starting a company in personalized medicine and was hiring her first team members. And I joined her and was on that journey with her to build the business raise money from DC. So saw firsthand how tough that can be, especially for women entrepreneurs. And then we sold that company a few years later. And that was my experience prior to being inspired to start Wildflower. Whoa. What was her name? Ryan Sealand. She uh, lives on a tugboat in Sausalito and she is phenomenal. So encourage folks. And now she is working with National Geographic to help, um, bring back extinct species through their through their genetic material she's an amazing woman <laughs> oh my gosh I don't know what I'm more excited about like the Jurassic Parkness of that or that she lives on a tugboat I you know, I've yet <laughs> to interview anyone who was currently on a boat um I hope her <laughs> is strong because I would love to do that interview that sounds amazing so you had this experience of you know the Um, you were doing all these little mini entrepreneurial ventures while at this big corporation, but then you really got to feel that, that experience of fundraising and then, uh, an acquisition, what led to wildflower and and what is wildflower health? Yeah. So we're obviously a women's health company focused on working with the current healthcare system. So the health plans, the brick and mortar OBGYNs and other providers who see women, and really trying to transform healthcare from the inside out to make it friendly for women. And and I can say more about that. But what inspired me to go on this journey was actually my own experience of starting a family. And I, my husband and I had a a tough time having a healthy pregnancy. And I got sort of tossed and turned in the healthcare system and providers not talking to each other to figure out what was going on with us. And finally, it all worked out. And I was pregnant with my first son. And it just really opened my eyes that if someone like myself, who is savvy about the healthcare system, works in the industry, 
was this frustrated with navigating the system, with providers not having shared data, with it being paper-based and fact-based? Like, how does how do other women deal with this? And then it also occurred to me that especially, you know, for me, starting a family was the first time I was entering the healthcare system. And it just struck me as this pivotal time to engage women and their families in healthcare to sort of set the stage for a journey of health. And we know women are often the steward of that for their family, for better or worse. So that was the original inspiration. And we set out to build a company that we hoped would, over time, really transform that experience for women. You know, I am not one to get sassy with customer service because I'm like, they're just a person on the phone. They, you know, they're like, not the decision makers. But I, um, I had a bad allergic reaction to some medicine about two years ago, and I had a lot of medical bills afterwards. And I was trying to understand the copays. And I have never been so mean to people on the phone before, because I was like, I have a PhD in genetics. I work in healthcare. I invest in healthcare. I don't understand why this fee is the way it is. And they would give me some definition and I'd be like, that is still, I still understand. I'm very smart. I pro like, I was just like, I like you, like, I don't understand what is, why do I owe all this money or why isn't this covered? Or why is this bill separate from this bill? Because apparently the hospital has a billing system, but the doctor I saw had a own, own billing, you know, what I was you know, like it was insane. It was insane. And luckily, I mean, it was only because I had to go to the ER one time, but I can't even imagine like trying to get pregnant and all the doctors you see and all the different visits and specialists and then the actual delivery. And wow. Yeah. I am not, I, I hope I'm glad wildflowers around. If I do ever go down that path <laughs> to have something, uh, support me in that process. Um, so how does wildflower do that? How do you support that? Make a solution for it? Yeah. So we, in the early days, back in 2012, 2013, when we were starting, we initially built out what I would call a digital front end to women's healthcare. So the, the low hanging fruit that we saw was to modernize the experience by giving providers and payers the tools to actually have a, a really consumer friendly front end to empower, you know, how to interpret their benefits and their co-pays and what's going to cost you to have this baby and how to connect to care. And so we slowly built that out and found that digital not only created a better experience, but could, it could actually improve health. So by getting women to engage, as you all know, you know well, you know, via applications or other digital ecosystem, we were able to get data more frequently and have a more meaningful touch point with women much more frequently than the traditional healthcare system. And we use that to help steer them to very tailored um, interventions and to connections to care. And we found that that could really transform the outcomes of pregnancy. So a lot of people don't appreciate that pregnancy is one of the most expensive events that will happen in your healthcare life, right? When I got my first bill from after my first child, it was $30,000 for just a normal delivery at um, my hospital. Fortunately, my copay was relatively low, but we spend a lot of money on childbirth and pregnancy in this country. And if you can begin to move the needle to have more women have healthy births, it really changes the cost burden for consumers, for employers, for Medicaid. And so that is what we found our technology did. And so over time, we just continue to build that out to make it more and more integrated into how providers deliver care, how payers reach their members, and, um, and really capped it off over the past year during the COVID crisis to enabling the ability for our providers to do full remote care and really transform how they, how they can see women, which has been really exciting to work in. 
what is the average cost of a pregnancy or you know labor today? Um, so the average cost, if you have a commercial payer for prenatal care, pregnancy, and newborn, is just over thirty thousand mm-hmm. um, dollars. And then for Medicaid, it's a little bit lower, probably closer to $20,000. But um, if something goes awry in that pregnancy, it can easily be a million dollars for you know, new, newborn care, NICU stays. And so it's a, it's a, it's a very big cost burden that is, um, ultimately impacts the consumer, right? Yeah. Because it, it shows up in how we pay for care one way or the other. Yeah. I've seen like, um, you know, GoFundMes for certain like health issues, but I don't know. I'm not sure I've ever seen one for like, we just had a baby and we've gone bankrupt because of it. Like, does that happen? And like, does it, am I just like not seeing it? Like are people fundraising on GoFundMe for pregnancies or like, or is there like the stigma or tell me about that? Yeah, it's a, I mean, fortunately for most people, they have insurance that should cover the cost of care, but there are people who are underinsured in this country and especially prior to the ACA. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a really good article in the New York Times a couple of years ago. Um, I think it was called, I could send it to you after this, like childbirth in America, the costliest in the world. And it profiled families who had experienced major problems economically because of not having enough insurance for a costly birth. So it definitely happens. Um, And I think just as importantly, forgetting the cost, we know that in the United States, we have the worst rates of maternal mortality in the developed world. We have the highest rates of C-section and preterm birth. So there's, you know, regardless of the cost, it's going to have a devastating impact on families um, when things go awry in pregnancy. And much of the complications and challenges we face are preventable with the right care, with the right connections between providers, having the right data on women and their, and their newborns. So excuse me, that's much of what we are tuning our company to really address through digital and services solutions for our providers and payer partners. Yeah. And your website, it says you have the wildflower health model. What is the wildflower health model? Yeah. So the wildflower health model is to, um, to again, digitally enable our provider partners to provide the best um, most po- best possible care to women. And, and, and the way that it, it works is it really uses a digital wrapper to, um, to wrap around an OB practice, for example. And as opposed to things being on paper, fax, or, or even portals, really having a, a personalized um, front, digital front end in the form of a typically a mobile application for that, for that provider that enables women to you know, put their health history in through an application to sign up to get remote care and get blood pressure devices sent to their home through an application, have televisits with their provider if they can't make it to their OB appointment. So again, modernizing that experience. So it's not the sort of traditional healthcare system model of I have to, you know, get childcare, I have to pay for parking, I have to go sit in the waiting room, I have to fill out forms on a clipboard. And, and when you modernize that experience, you not only make it better and more consumer friendly, but you begin to, um, because it's technology, be able to apply rules and, and harness that data and send it into provider workflows, not just with here's Brittany's health history, but here's her health history and digitally pull in, here are the guidelines to make it really easy for you to know what to do with that, right? Just helping providers have easy decision support at the point of care. 
So that's, I think, a big part of the provide of the wildflower model is modernizing that experience and making better for providers and patients. And then we also can pull the health plan into that model. So that one of the problems with U.S. healthcare is that there's these huge silos, right? Your health plan has no idea what's going on with you and your provider, and maybe they don't need to know. But to the extent to which it impacts whether something's going to be covered, whether you're going to be hit with a big copay, um, or it's going to somehow impact your benefits, it is helpful to connect those dots. And, um, and make it really seamless. So those are all the things that we're doing, again, to really modernize this experience. Are there other silos? Because I noticed that on your website too, you said uh, one of the slogans is collapsing silos. So you said, you know, your healthcare provider and then the insurance company, is there other silos that we may not necessarily think about, but exist? Yes, I think especially unique to women's care. So forget about pregnancy for a moment. Women's preventive care. Women, the data would tell us that women are more likely to see their OB regularly than any other provider. And we might be going to our well woman visits and getting our mammograms and what have you. But when you have a other preventive care issue, like say you want to get your cholesterol checked, right? A lot of times the OB says, oh, no, go to your PCP. The women have to go to a whole a completely different provider, maybe get asynchronous care to get that. And then those two those two providers live in data silos and don't connect. Mm -hmm. And so women to me are getting, um, you know, th there's a real gap in our preventive care and, and, and the integrated care model that needs to exist in women because there are so many different providers who may touch us, right? We may have a behavioral health provider, an OB, a PCP, a specialist. And so we've got to figure out as an industry to close that loop and technology and data can help solve it, but, um, but it's not easy. And it's something we have to sort of tackle uh, region by region and, and provider partner at a time. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, it's reminding me, my sister just had a baby and in November and she's kind of struggling to, to get back emotionally, right? She has the postpartum. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, she talks to me about this stuff. I'm the, the sister with a Zoom background with vulvas on it. So she... <laughs> <laughs> You know, they, they put me on some medicine and I said, you know, I think, you know, you were seeing a psychiatrist, Sabrina, before you got pregnant, like, did they talk to them? Or she was like, oh no, like they just wrote me the script for this drug or whatever, you know? And I was like, they, you know, and I'm okay, take it, you know, but in the back of my mind, I'm like, dang, you should really, you know, like, I wonder what data your psychiatrist had before you were pregnant that could potentially influence like maybe the drug they just gave you actually isn't the right one based on what your previous diagnosis was like, I don't know. Right. And so it's just like, I like that you said behavioral health, because I think so often we're thinking of, you know, infection or physical things, which, you know, mental is it's your brain uh, and the cells in your body. But, you know, I feel like we, we oftentimes lose that connection with, um, what is our, our mental health? How is that linking up with our dietitian? How is it linking up with our, all these different parts? Do you, does wildflower have that like mental health part too? Yeah. Well, so we aren't a mental health provider, but what we do when we work with our OB providers in particular is, is, is seek to help them put in place exactly what you're saying, Brittany, a whole health model of care, whether we're talking about pregnancy or ongoing women's health. And, and the way that my, my clinical operations team thinks about it is, these, you know, these may be the outcomes we're looking to change, right? Like uh, better, better rates, lower rates of maternal mortality, fewer NICU admissions, et cetera. And then you can kind of dive into, okay, what causes those? And there's certain high-risk conditions. And then what causes those? And you get all the way to the bottom, and there are these determinants of health. People talk a lot about social determinants of health, 
but there's behavioral, there's lifestyle, there's genetics, and all of those things have to be addressed at the bottom of that pyramid to get the top of the pyramid to move. And so when we work with a provider, you're, I mean, I love your example, hope you're, you know, all the best to your sister, but we, we want to understand what is your history with depression or anxiety or behavioral health? What are your other providers? And we actually tether virtual care coordinators to care with our patients and the, OP, and the providers so that we can reach out to those other providers, get that data, be doing more frequent screening for anxiety and depression for women who have that history or have that risk factor. Don't wait until they've had the baby, right? So it's, it's got to come together to this whole health model. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Because she, you know, ended up having to go to the hospital, you know, the hospital, but the doctor being like, uh, so I can't keep crying. And they're like, oh, okay. Like we'll address that now. And I'm like, but based on our history and our family's history, considering we're all like on meds, like maybe there's a trend here that we should have like, there's so much data that said we should have thought about this earlier. Right. Before she was like really sad for a few months. So yeah, it blows my mind. Um, you're talking a lot about digital, 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 right? How, how long have you been, has Wildflower been around? Uh, we started in 2012. 2012. Wow. Wow. And so what has been your experience with, um, I, I remember in college, I was a medical technician at an eye doctor's office. So I'm talking 2011, 2012, and we still had our paper charts and we were talking about oh, they're going to make us go electronic, electronic medical records. But until then, we're going to have files and files and files of papers. And like, and so when you enter the market and we're saying digital, like, was it what, like, was it a big mountain to climb? And like, and I can imagine COVID just totally accelerated it. Can you tell me about that history of digitizing healthcare? Yeah. So it's been interesting experience. Um, and I can't believe it's been almost nine years um, that we've been doing this. Uh, we, our original customers, customer base we worked with, in fact, this is a great story. The very first client we worked with to, to modernize and digitize healthcare was the state of Wyoming Medicaid, who cold called me in the second half of 2012 saying, you should come to Wyoming and do this. And we thought, what? Yeah. You even have, have bandwidth there? Um, <laughs> but it, it turned out great because we actually realized that some of these, these types of populations, and um, particularly on the health plan side, had very little compelling technology underlying any of their processes. And in Medicaid, it's crucial to be able to reach families, reach women, and they often may not have um, a laptop or Wi-Fi connection, but they typically have a smartphone. And so, you know, when we first started, we found that there was just a lot of opportunity to fill that gap um, and just, again, create sort of a digital front end where none existed. And we were really surprised by the types of people who are interested in that. So we started on the payer side, both Medicaid and um, private payers and employers. And then around 2017 is when we started working with providers. And it's, it's a really good question and point about the health, the electronic medical, medical records or EMRs. And I think there was an early perception that the that electronic medical records would sort of solve all the problems of digitizing healthcare. And I think what the healthcare industry has found and providers have found over time is that those EMRs were really built to help them store data and build the insurance companies. They are not consumer engagement. They are not patient engagement. They don't even transform workflows in a user-friendly way for the most part. 
So what we have done over the years is figured out how to use the best of the electronic medical records. So we enable our users to single sign on into that medical record. So they can get their appointments on our application. We can get their data. We can send it back to their provider. And so hooking those types has definitely been a lot of work, but, um, but as the you know, healthcare ecosystem has matured, there are a lot of companies helping to do that and make it really seamless. But it's, it's an important part of our company's capabilities now. Mm-hmm. Well, I know that y'all have been very successful. You've raised several rounds of funding. Um, can you tell us, you know, we have a lot of early stage founders listening, a little bit about that journey. What was it like, um, you know, software as a service, I'm assuming, is that how the product essentially, yeah. And so um, like in targeting this business model and like was fundraising easier than, you know, our organic tampon companies <laughs> talking about menstrual blood, you know, cause it was software and healthcare and, you know, or was it just as hard and difficult and, and just tell us a little bit about that fundraising journey. Yeah. I mean, I think the world was very different in 2013 as a women's health company. Femtech was not a term in 2013 when I raised my first round. Right. <laughs> and, um, we, I mean, you mentioned your sister. I had just had a baby, her child, when we started down the path of fundraising. And I remember, I have no history of um, anxiety or depression uh, prior to pregnancy. And I remember going to my PCP and saying, I think I'm developing asthma. And they examined me and said, no, you're hyperventilating. You're having panic attacks. <laughs> and so the combination of having a newborn and fundraising and having people say, no, 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 women's health is a niche, it's too small, was just too much for me. But I, we, we powered through it. But yeah, it was very, very difficult. I would say to any early stage company, even today with the market being so much more friendly to entrepreneurs in general, women's health, it is so hard to raise the first round. You were asking investors to take a leap of faith. Mm-hmm. And um, and especially for me in 2013, I just found a lot of skepticism about women's health. It was deemed a niche space. It was deemed small. This argument that women make 80% of the healthcare decisions had, had not yet become mainstream. We mm-hmm. were one of the only people saying that. And um, I literally remember having an investor in, in, in on Sand Hill Road say to me, look, I only invest in things that I can use and I'll never be pregnant. And so I, it just, it was those types of attitudes that we confronted that I, again, I think have been it's a very different world now, but it was difficult. And it, um, but the thing I would say to entrepreneurs is every round gets easier. And as you, as you meet milestones, as you find product market fit, as you get customers who love you, users who love you, whatever your business model is, it gets easier and easier. And, um, but you still have to keep finding creative ways to grow. So that's part of the journey. Mm. How big is your team now and what does the future for Wildflower look like? Yeah, so we're about 100 people um, and, uh, and it, you know, in all different types of roles. Um, so what we are doing now, our focus is on, you know, going beyond software as a service, as you put in selling software only to extending into a more of a, a complete solution model where we will not only provide software, but we'll provide services and support to help our providers and the insurance companies and Medicaid plans we work with come together on new payment models for, for women's health. And what I mean by that is, as, you know, as, as many people can appreciate today, providers typically 
um, clinical providers bill every time someone has an office visit or they bill after you have a baby. Um, so it's all event-based fee-for-service billing, as the industry would call it. And we're seeing this movement to paying for outcomes as opposed to paying for events. And we think that has the potential to be really helpful for an indication like pregnancy or condition like experience like pregnancy, where you really want all your providers tuned to making sure you have the healthiest possible outcome that you're screening for depression so that mom doesn't go back into a hospital with an adverse event, that you're doing everything you can to help that baby not be born early so it doesn't end up in the NICU and have a lot of trauma and stress for families in that situation. So um, we think that has the potential to radically change healthcare and will help continue to grow wildflower as a partner to our clients. That's where we're going. Is that what they are calling value-based care? I feel like a lot of people are saying yeah. value-based care, value-based care. And I don't want to be that person, but you know, I also am. I'm that person who raises their hand and I'm like, what does that mean? Like, do we, what does that mean? So can you tell us what is the definition of value-based care? Yes, it is. It is it's actually exactly what it sounds like paying clinical providers, whether it's a, an outpatient provider or hospital, paying them for the value delivered versus paying them for every event. So for example, in, in pregnancy, I mentioned the average cost of a pregnancy in the United States is about $32,000, including newborn care. It's coming together between a provider and an insurance company or an employer, whoever's paying for the care to say, okay, as opposed to paying you for this pregnancy at 15,000 and that one at 70,000, we're gonna try to get them all to be an average of $30,000. And here's that money provider, go provide the very best care you can at this amount of money. And, and we know in healthcare that better outcomes are associated with lower costs. It's a really good thing, right, about our industry. Yeah. And so giving the providers the tools and the ability and looking at data to understand how can I help this family have the very best possible outcome and the lower cost will follow. And so it's aligning all the incentives in the system and it's as simple as that. But it's, it's easier said than done, right? Yeah, <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, a few more questions just about because you work in this, you know, kind of payer, payee system, you know, I come across a lot of companies that say, you know, we're innovating and you know, we're creating a diagnostic test for ovarian cancer. It's the first one of its kind. So there's no billing code. We got to go try to make one. Right. Or, um, you know, <laughs> breast pumps has like one billing code, but there's all different kinds and different prices. And so do you think that there's like some, a lot of legislation and like, um, mindsets around how do we bill women's health? How do we cover women's health? How do we define women's health? Like endometriosis is still like a specialty code, even though one in 10 women have it. Like, do you have some, what are, what are maybe some things that keep you up at night <laughs> that has to do with that? Um, or like, and, or do you have like some things like, you know, you're hoping that get fixed pretty soon? Yeah. God, that's a, that's a it's a great question. Um, so not to go, not to say that value-based care is a panacea or new payment models, but I, I have this, I don't, it's going to take us a while to get there, but I do think it's possible that over the next few years, as we move to, again, sort of giving providers sort of a bucket of money to manage patients, right? And providers can then know, okay, well, this particular device or this test I know works for my patients. And I have, I have jurisdiction to decide how this, pocket, this bucket of money is spent. Mm -hmm. And being able to have um, sort of new types of 
relationships between providers and those entities that help manage money to make those decisions on a patient-by-patient basis in a personalized way, as opposed to waiting for like the Uber billing code, the one-size-fits-all model for everybody is not, it's not really the way care should be delivered. It needs to be very personalized. Um, and so I think that the, the changes in the payment model could resolve that pain for a lot of companies. I mean, I really hope if Wildflower does our job, right, that we can put together you know, what we would call new payment models or bundles where some of these more innovative companies, whether they have tests or they have certain types of services, could be included as part of it because we know it's going to produce that ROI because by making that investment. So Remote devices is a great example. You know, historically, remote blood pressure cuffs, it was sort of not always paid for, particularly for pregnancy. And if you're in a value-based model where you're getting paid for a good outcome, Wildflower and our provider partners can just pay for that cuff up front. We don't have to go get it reimbursed. We can just invest the $50, and then we know it's going to pay for itself and avoiding a $20,000 adverse reaction on the other end. So, um, I think that those are the types of things that need to happen to make this more efficient and um, and better for patients and providers both. So interesting. You, this is not my field. <laughs> I feel like I'm really well adverse in a lot of things, but all this, I'm like, I'm going to take notes. Uh, does this apply to medicine as well? So I'm hearing a lot of like, it's a service or an event or a med device that gets used or a test that gets taken. But what about like a like we'll use birth control. That's kind of a basic, you know, drug. Does value-based care and like medicines, like, does that, is there blend there? Is that totally another, that's another podcast episode? Yeah. Um, so I've, I've, so I've worked a lot in pharmacy. So, so it's probably another podcast. Um, I think okay. some medicines lend themselves well to these, these sort of defined episode bundled payments for one outcome. Um, but, you know, there's a whole, like all of the drug spend is managed like through pharmacies, through the PBMs, and um, and they, much of them, the really expensive specialty drugs fall into just sort of a different category of management. So, okay. All right. It's a whole nother can of worms. <laughs> no problem. I was just wondering, I was like, same can, kind of same can, no can. Okay. Um, my last question regarding wildflower is why did you call it wildflower? Oh, what a great question. Um, so, you know, candidly, I had a lot of really bad ideas for names for this company. I was, I wanted it something that was about new growth and new life and, uh, you know, I kept coming up with names that my friends told me were terrible. And, you know, it just occurred to me one day, what I love is I'm not a very good gardener. Um, I, I, I would really struggle to to grow roses or what have you, but I love wildflowers because there's no effort, right? They just appear and they, and they have, um, you know, against all odds, they create beauty in the middle of nature. Mm-hmm. And to me, that is the symbol for innovation and what innovative companies or entities or organizations or people could should be doing and I just thought it was a really good symbol and that's why we we stuck with it wildflower health I love it well we have two last questions that our listeners love the first one is we have a lot of aspiring femtech founders that are listeners so what is an area in women's health and wellness that still needs innovating oh so many so many right um, I, I think one one area that intrigues me that I would have no idea where to start is uh, women are disproportionately impacted by certain types of headaches and migraines, and I feel like it is a black hole. And I've just I've personally had so many friends who've just been 
knocked out by a migraine randomly, right? And they don't know why they miss work. It's this huge productivity burden for employers. So I think there's a lot of white space there. I, I think, and, and of course, this is going to become more personal for me sooner than I'd like. I think menopause is just, I know there's some great companies. And I, I know you've had Genev on, on the show and, but I still think there is just, it's, there's so many women impacted by menopause um, and just middle-aged women in general, the, the, some of the things they deal with, with incontinence and other, other issues that, again, are sort of taboo, if you will. It's, it's a huge impact on society, on employers, on providers who don't know how to deal with it. I think there's a lot of white space there as well. Absolutely. Um, just the other day, my mom texted me. Apparently, this podcast is about my family, but <laughs> this episode, my mother texted me and she said, Britt, you, uh, you know, uh, that drug Addy for sexual dysfunction, is that for only premenopausal women? And I said, oh, and I looked it up. Sure enough, there's two FDA approved drugs for sexual dysfunction, but both of them are for premenopausal women. So it's really targeting like the, the neuroscience of sexual desire. Mm-hmm. And so she was like, my mom was like, so what is there for like postmenopausal women who are like, have no desire? And I was like, oh my God, I don't think that. Like there's lotions to like make it more comfortable, but like, there's not necessarily anything targeting desire. And I was like, all right, y'all, when that company comes across my email inbox, I'm making an investment because I thought like, oh, that's so great. We have that like two FDA approved, you know, female Viagra's, but actually it's only premenopausal. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. That's crazy. It's almost like women as they age just sort of disappear in terms of getting attention for what, what, what they really need. So there's just a lot of opportunity there. Even with all of the, you know, especially Addie and Cindy Eckert and all the PR they had around it, I didn't know that it was still premenopausal. You know, they made it sound like it was like, oh, women. And I'm like, no, there's still like lots of women anyways. Okay. Yeah. That I'm on a high horse about that currently. Um, <laughs> and our last question is, uh, what is the femtech industry as a whole needs the, need the most right now in order to be successful? I think I, I continue to think it needs investment, really scaled investment. I know there's been a lot of money flowing into this space, but I, I, I run into investors who say, oh, I've already got a women's health investment <laughs> and that's it, right? And, and there's just, there's so much, this is, this, is, this is such a big space. You know, there's women influence over a trillion of spend. There's, you know, even in my space, women under 65, there's $700 billion of spend on, in women's medical care, right? Forgetting all the consumables. And so it's just, I think we need to take an even more open-ended approach as an industry of how much investment there is to make, whether you're an investor, a private company investing in solutions, um, or an employer investing in the space. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we we come across that a lot with investors saying, well, there's already a tampon company or there's already a, you know, fertility company. And it's like, okay, well, there's actually lots of different types of women. They speak different languages. Mm-hmm. They have different religions. They're different races. They like different branding. They like different costing, like price points, you know? And it's like, mm-hmm. there's one company out there. It does not mean it fits all of the women and all the vaginas in the world, right? Like, just like there's coffee brands. <laughs> we should have that. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Leah, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Brittany. It was really fun. 
Thank you again to our sponsors, Witham, the amazing accounting firm with a dedicated femtech team, and Women's Health Innovation Summit, taking place this fall in Boston. And thank you, listeners, for listening to my interview with Leah Sparks, the CEO and founder at Wildflower Health. Wildflower is a catalyst for helping health plans and clinicians improve the experience and ultimately the health outcomes of women and families across the country. Alrighty, Femme fans, be sure to give the show a five-star review and share it with a friend. Join our virtual community at femtechfocus.org and join the thousands of other Femtech founders, investors, and mentors advancing women's health. While in the virtual community, sign up to be a Fem Pro member for only $10 a month, and you can get access to the Femtech Institute, which is a library of Femtech and startup lessons that are sure to help you advance your startup and teach you more about the Femtech industry. Keep an eye out for our monthly Femtech Book Club, which happens last Wednesday of every month, and subscribe to our newsletter. Last but not least, please consider setting up a recurring donation to Femtech Focus, which is a 501c3 nonprofit and relies on your donations to operate. Okay, Fem fans, until next time, keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness. Mm-hmm.